from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Our guest today is Chesa Boudin. Chesa was elected the district attorney of San Francisco in late 2019, running on a, you know, basically a progressive prosecutor's agenda and served there for about two and a half years and then was the subject of a well-financed and well-coordinated recall campaign. In California, it's one of the states where you can recall politicians. Doesn't happen in most states and landed up losing that. So he is now the ex D.A. So, Chesa, uh, I really appreciate your getting on with me now and hope this is a good moment when you're not running anything, not an office, to be able to talk as freely as possible about all sorts of criminal justice issues. Absolutely. I'm happy to be with you, Ethan, and I've enjoyed listening to your pod in the past and am honored to be a guest on the show. 
So Chisa, I mean, let me start off by asking you this. You came with a very strong um, reformist perspective. You were working in the public defender's office. Why was it that you decided to throw your hat in the ring and actually run for, you know, the chief prosecutor job in San Francisco when that would be a job that would involve putting people behind bars? As I imagine we'll talk about, I grew up visiting my own parents in prison. My dad served 40 years before he was ultimately released. My mom did 22 years. And though I don't remember their arrest, I was too little. My earliest memories are waiting in lines at prison gates to go through metal detectors and to get searched just to be able to see my parents, just to be able to give them hugs. And so as long as I can remember, I've been impacted by and thinking about this country's response to crime and how we mete out punishment and what rehabilitation means. And I've been acutely aware of the tremendous carnage that the war on drugs has left in its wake. I've been actively witnessing the racial disparities that our criminal legal system amplifies. And when I went to law school, I wanted to try to fight to change that system, the system that had done so little to invest in victims and was, was so disinterested in reentry and rehabilitation and was so focused on punishment in ways that we're not making our communities safer. And at the time I went to law school, um, prosecutors were really part of the problem. They were a driving force in mass incarceration and in what had led the United States to be the country that embarrassingly leads the world in locking people up. And so I became a public defender after law school. And it was only in that context that um, I saw professionally what I'd experienced personally my whole life. And I looked around the country and was witnessing a national movement that recognized we can build safety through decarceration and that prosecutors are a key part of that movement. And it was in that context that I decided to run for San Francisco district attorney. I see. You know, yeah, we just mentioned your parents. For our listeners, uh, Chase's mother was Kathy Boudin and his father, David Gilbert. And they were part of a radical militant left-wing organization involved with the Weather Underground. And on one day in 1981, when Chase was just a, a tot, um, landed up being connected with members of the Black Liberation Army driving a getaway car when an operation happened where two police officers and a Brinks guard were killed. And so, as he said, his parents were sentenced and he was then adopted. I mean, his legal guardians were two other well-known members of the Weathermen Underground, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn. So he comes from quite distinguished what might be called radical royalty. In fact, his grandfather, Leonard Boudin, was a civil rights and uh, uh, civil liberties activist who represented Daniel Ellsberg in the Pentagon Papers case. So I have to say, Chase, there are probably few other names or families that are as linked to the kind of radical left in contemporary American politics is yours. Well, I, I, I didn't live through that whole history, but uh, as you say, um, I have a lot of family members who have been actively involved in politics in, in different ways and student organizing and in litigating. And we could go back even further. My uh, grandfather's uncle, Louis Boudin, uh, wrote a number of, of uh, really important scholarly works and books criticizing the Supreme Court's refusal in the 1930s to accept the New Deal and the ways in which the Supreme Court was striking down the federal legislative initiative aimed at addressing the, the, the Great Depression. So mm -hmm. yeah, we, we have a lot of lawyers and scholars in the family and a lot of people who have been very critically involved in responding to fascism and imperialism and, and racism. 
And uh, I'm certainly proud to have learned from some of the mistakes made along the way and also to share a commitment to fighting to make the world a better place. Now, were your parents incarcerated in New York State prisons? Yes, both uh, Kathy and David served the entirety of their prison sentences in New York State correctional facilities. And so, as I recall, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, New York State was either first or second among all the states in the country in terms of the proportion of people incarcerated for drug law violations. In fact, I think at one point in New York, it came close to 50% of all new commitments. So I imagine when you went to visit your parents, um, basically, you must have been surrounded by families visiting people who were getting locked up oftentimes on nonviolent, low-level drug offenses, the notorious Rockefeller drug laws. Yeah, I have vivid memories of talking to my mother. And, you know, of course, I remember uh, many of the women in my mother's prison were there serving time for essentially standing up for themselves in the face of horrific sexual violence and domestic violence. But increasingly over the years, it was people who were casualties of the war on drugs. And I remember uh, one woman in particular who was one of my mother's best friends in prison and helped teach my mother Spanish and inspired me to go to Latin America and learn Spanish. And she was there for many, many, many years because uh, of the role she played as a low-level mule for a bigger drug mm-hmm. cartel. Another woman, the mother of a, a close friend of mine, uh, who I became friends with in the prison visiting room, was serving a many decades long sentence under the Rockefeller drug laws. All, all of these folks had no violence, no history of violence, no weapons. Uh, and yet were were filling uh, jails and prisons across New York State. I mean, was your mom in the Bedford Hills prisons in New York? I- exactly right. Bedford Hills yeah. at the time, maybe still today, but throughout her tenure there was the only maximum security prison for women in New York State. And so anyone considered maximum security, um, and it, it might seem odd to folks who aren't familiar with the American criminal legal system, but... My mother was there serving a sentence for the most serious offense on the books. She had participated in an armed robbery that left three men, two of them police officers, dead. And though she wasn't personally armed and didn't personally hurt anybody, she was ultimately convicted of murder. And she was in a prison that was designed for people who were maximum security. Makes sense given her charges and the violence in her case for her to have been in that prison certainly at the outset of her commitment. But ask yourself, why would a maximum security prison be filled with women serving as long or longer in some instances for entirely nonviolent drug-related offenses? So, I mean, your, you know, your background is impressive. I mean, Yale, Rhodes Scholar, Yale Law School. You clerked for Judge Chuck Breyer, the little brother of the Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, became a public defender. And then you get elected, what, in your late 30s to be the district attorney of San Francisco. I remember at the time, and I had people close to me who were working closely with you, and everybody was enormously excited. Did you anticipate um, some the, the extent of the backlash that would happen. I remember, I think somebody like set up a website like the day after you were elected, recall Chase Boudin before you'd even, even been inaugurated. But did you anticipate how si- significant and serious this backlash would be? Certainly we expected pushback and backlash and folks like Kim Fox and Larry Krasner and George Gascon and others who are part of this national movement 
across the country, Rachel Rollins, Marilyn Mosby, you know, had given me fair warning after I was elected that I would expect this kind of thing. But but no, there's no way uh, until you've lived it and experienced it that you could be fully prepared for the intensity and the vitriol and the dishonesty in the attacks. You know, it would be great if we could have honest policy discussions about climate change or public schools or the drug war. And we could agree to disagree on some points. We could look at data and we could let policy and practice and government institutions be driven by honest, nuanced conversations. That is not the way that the world works today, if ever. And instead, we are seeing a tremendous amount of intentional misinformation, vitriolic attacks. Um, It's a very intentional and explicit and frankly successful part of the broader Republican playbook. And we saw Donald Trump and his allies use it extremely effectively for years. And we see it even in deep blue cities like San Francisco as a key part of the political discourse and the way in which public perception is shaped about issues like drugs. Now, of course, you win office in late 2019, and just a few months later, COVID happens, and the kind of the world is in this bizarre, confused state. People are off the streets. In many cities, including my home in New York, you see, you know, a disproportionate number of the people who were out on the streets at that time were people suffering from mental illness, people are homeless. I mean, a lot of people not feeling safe anymore walking around. This obviously is happening in San Francisco. And some months later, the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests and some of the violence that, you know, happened during that time as well. And then, of course, you're setting up and running an office when all of a sudden nobody's coming into the office anymore and you're all online. So what were those first three, four or five months like for you? Yeah, I mean, I was elected in November 2019. I wasn't sworn into office until January 2020. Almost exactly two months after I was sworn in, um, the mayor declared a state of emergency and essentially shut down the city. And San Francisco has been one of the slowest cities in the country to reopen. People are still working remotely in higher proportions than in almost any other big city. And so it's had a dramatic impact on our courts. Our courthouse remains uh, partially closed. We never fully reopened. We never got back to full capacity for trying cases. The impact of COVID-19 and the shutdown on crime trends was uh, far more dramatic and long-lasting than we initially anticipated. Um, And as you pointed out, trying to run an office, trying to shape the culture of an office, trying to do training, trying to build trust and increase morale in an office when you're doing everything over Zoom, including new job interviews and orientations for people you're onboarding, was tremendously challenging. Uh, And there's no question that it was a huge, huge obstacle to my ability to build relationships with and trust with some of the constituencies in San Francisco who maybe hadn't supported my election in the first place, but in principle agree with the policies we're implementing. Um, Mm -hmm. But we just didn't have any opportunity to get face-to-face in the same room with Mm -hmm. a lot of people across the city because of the pandemic. 
Well, you know, I'm curious. I mean, you mentioned before Larry Krasner, the district attorney in Philadelphia, who ran on a progressive agenda and they got reelected. And I had him as a guest on Psychoactive last year. And I'm wondering, you know, in your office like his, part of what happened was tons of the old time prosecutors in the office left or were fired by, you know, him or by you. And meanwhile, a number of people come in from the public defender's office where you had worked before. I mean, there must have been a massive culture clash when that sort of thing happens. Can you describe what that was like? What you have to remember is that people who've spent five or 10 or 25 years of their lives working as district attorneys in a traditional carceral prosecutor's office, an office that wholeheartedly and enthusiastically waged the war on drugs, are not doing it primarily for the money. They're not doing it primarily for the glory. And, and so they believe on some core level, that what they're doing is in the interest of justice and is, in fact, promoting public safety. And so if somebody, an outsider like Larry or myself, comes along and runs a race in which we're openly critical of the war on drugs or of many of the traditional ways that prosecutors have behaved, like seeking convictions at all costs, like covering up police misconduct, like refusing to consider the possibility that people have been wrongfully convicted of crimes and are languishing in prisons. Those new approaches that are quintessential parts of the progressive prosecutor movement are not going to be well received by folks who've dedicated their lives and their careers to a very different approach to doing the job. And so, yeah, there's inevitably a, a certain degree of distrust and a disconnect. And bureaucracies are very effective at resisting change, at digging their heels in at simply refusing to follow instructions or new policies. We see it with police departments all across the country when uh, efforts at reform are implemented through state legislation or police commissions or police chiefs even. And certainly we experienced some very active resistance and sabotage from within our ranks. We also though, and this is important, uh, we also had a large number of staff who were excited and supportive and embraced the vision um, who had joined the office because it was San Francisco and it was known as a progressive town and because my predecessor, Diego Gascon, had uh, certainly in his later years begun to implement a lot of reforms uh, that, again, we see as part of the, the national conversation around progressive prosecutors. And so there was a, a, mixed, a mixed reception, I would say, a lot of resistance and entrenched hostility. And yet uh, also uh, some of the attorneys uh, were and some of the other staff were very open to the ideas. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount from the people in the office over the two and a half years that I had the honor to serve as district attorney. What do you think in your interactions with the old time prosecutors in your office who remained, was there anything that you learned from them that really changed the way that you thought about criminal justice or about the role of the prosecutor in a significant way? Here I'm talking about the old line prosecutors who chose not to leave. I learned a lot from from some of these folks, and some of them were were uh, public supporters of mine in opposition to the recall. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them helped me navigate my first ever grand jury indictment in a homicide case that I presented to a grand jury. Uh, so, you know, there, there was a, a lot that I learned from folks, uh, both day to day uh, nuts and bolts about running the office, about interactions with other agencies like the police and the courts uh, from this side of the aisle. But I think big picture, one of the things that I learned is uh, from these folks and from the job and, and you know, is, is the disconnect between the way the Supreme Court describes 
the ethical and legal obligations of the prosecutor, a minister of justice. You know, we have to be um, justice seekers, not conviction seekers. You know, we're not advocating for uh, a particular party in the case. We represent the people, all of the people. Um, the way it's described in, in Supreme Court opinions and in ethical treatises is very, very, very far removed from the day-to-day -day reality of the political pressures of the job in which there's huge, huge incentive to mitigate political risk and, and perceive public safety risk by locking people up for as long as possible. And doing that without regard to evidence or data or justice or even the wishes of the victims. And it's easy to see why good-hearted, well-intentioned people in this role would naturally lean and skew towards seeking pretrial detention, seeking incarceration, and relying on incarceration as a primary response to the tremendously diverse array of social problems that get dumped on the criminal legal system. I saw mm -hmm. why and how that happens, and it made me all the more determined to ensure that my office would not fall victim, would not uh, participate in that horrific aberration of justice and of the real constitutional duties of prosecutors. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second-grade teacher and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep, 
and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Reading about what you did during your two and a half years, there was a piece in The Atlantic, and it said, Boudin has ended cash bail, which for our listeners, basically the practice whereby your ability to get out on bail once you've been arrested depends on whether or not you can raise the money or not. Um, He has ceased prosecuting cases in which the evidence came from, quote unquote, pretextual traffic stops, such as when a police officer pulls over a car for a broken taillight and ends up booking the driver after founding drugs. He, you, stopped using enhancements that add years to the sentences of gang members. He quit using the stakes three strikes law. He filed charges against a San Francisco police officer accused of brutality. He instituted a commission to identify and overturn wrongful convictions. He cut the number of young people incarcerated in half and reduced the pretrial jail population. And he also expanded the use of diversion and restorative justice programs. So accurate description of what you did, in fact, do while you were there? Um, we did that stuff. Yeah, that's all true. We could keep going. Uh, there's a lot of work mm-hmm. that I'm that I'm proud of that uh, we promised voters in 2019 we would work towards and which, in fact, we did work towards. OK, keep going. What else? Tell me some of the other things so our listeners will understand. We launched an independent innocence commission that exonerated a man wrongfully convicted of murder after decades in prison. We created a worker protection unit uh, because we recognize that wage theft is causing harm to far, far more Americans than most of the property crimes that are traditionally prosecuted. We um, dramatically expanded victim services, including appointing the first ever Chinese-speaking head of victim services and uh, increasing the number of Chinese-speaking staff in our office by over 500%. Um, we expanded victim services into areas that had never gone before to begin offering services to victims of property crime, to um, work in partnership with uh, both private and public stakeholders to create housing for domestic violence survivors, for example. And we also really embraced our commitment to preventing crime and being proactive rather than reactive with cases like our groundbreaking lawsuit against the manufacturers of ghost guns, illegal firearms that are designed to be untraceable and sold uh, on black markets or over the internet to people who intend to use them to commit crimes. We didn't wait for those crimes to be committed. We filed a major lawsuit against three of the biggest manufacturers of those guns in the state of California. Now, I know that in part of the debate over what was going on leading up to the recall, I mean, you were putting out statistics about, in fact, you were charging much more than people said and other people. And and of course, you know, the stats, anybody can, to some extent, manipulate them one way or the other. And then with COVID coming in, it's very hard to do, you know, year by year comparisons in any real way. Um, but what's your, some of your critics, uh, let's start off with um, good old, uh, what's her name, Brooke? 
Jenkins, right, who worked in your DA's office, who left and who, after you were recalled, uh, Mayor London Breed appointed to be your successor. I mean, sending a pretty clear message that she wanted to put a more tough on crime sort of person there. And what she said about you, I'm going to quote, Chasa has a belief that your approach should be defendant centered. Everything should revolve around what's best for the defendants. He's never let go of his role as the public defender. But she said a prosecutor's primary function is public safety. You have to serve as an advocate of the victim. So what was or what it would be your response to that now? Well, first of all, my office under my leadership did more to expand victim services and to increase language access for non-English speaking victims uh, than any DA in the history of San Francisco. And I am tremendously proud of my record when it comes to advocating for victims. Personally meeting with families of homicide victims in uh, more cases than I can count, asking in every single budget I submitted to the mayor to increase resources for our victim services division as a primary request in my budget every single year. Um, so clearly what Brooke was saying in that statement was was political. It was designed to attack and to support the recall, and it was part of an effective campaign. The, the thing that um, stands out at me more than just the the dishonesty and the the, the tr- typical and traditional dishonesty of um, of politics is that actually our criminal legal system is set up around the defendant. And that's not a choice that I made or one that I necessarily even agree with. But the way that the system works in this country, going back to our Bill of Rights, is that people accused of crimes written into the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights have civil protections have rights like speedy trial and the right to counsel and the right to confront witnesses against them, have a whole series of rights around which the court processes in this country have been developed over centuries. Victims do not have equivalent rights. They're not even represented in criminal cases. This isn't my interpretation or my view of how it should work. This is what every single criminal case in the state of California says. It says the people versus the name of the defendant. The victim's name is not in the charging document. They're not a party to the case. District attorneys have an obligation under state law to provide services and information to victims. And there's no funding that comes with those obligations. I fought every day I was in office to increase funding so we could do a better job communicating with victims, informing them of their rights, empowering them to make their voice heard. But the notion that I am somehow defendant-centered, and that is a criticism of me, is actually just an observation about the way the Founding Fathers designed our legal system, and one that goes back, in fact, to old England. People accused of crime who are facing deprivation of liberty have a tremendous number of very strong rights written into our founding document. It is not equivalent. You can't find any equivalent for victims. And maybe that's something we should change. But until we do, her criticism is a criticism of the system, and it's one that she now is responsible for running. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's get into specifically the drug issue, which is the main focus of the of this podcast. You know, one thing San Francisco has had to deal with, I mean, on the one hand, there's this horrific rate of overdose fatalities among the highest in the country, notwithstanding a whole lot of progressive public health policies. Um, so, you know, far more people dying of, of overdose in recent years in San Francisco than died of COVID. 
right? Then secondly, you have an open-air drug dealing scene where people can drive through the Tenderloin or some other parts of San Francisco and they see people openly selling drugs. Or if you walk down that street, you'll be offered drugs, right? Now, my understanding is that when it comes to the drug dealing piece of this, that, you know, a significant, maybe half of all the drug dealers, the low-level dealers, at least as far as we don't know about the higher-level dealers, are, you know, young guys coming out of Central America, mostly Honduran, and, you know, some of them are themselves even being trafficked into the U.S. And one criticism of you was that you specifically charged many of these low-level drug sellers, Hondurans, um, who are not legally in the country. You charged them in such a way as to avoid them being deported. And that really pissed people off. So tell me more about that. Well, first, a uh, slight technical correction. We did not make charges or charging decisions in ways designed to avoid deportation. We charge drug sales cases across the board, regardless of immigration status, based on the facts and the law, usually violations of the health and safety code for the relevant quantity and kinds of drugs. What we did do, and we did this consistent with a requirement under state law, was we considered immigration status when negotiating plea deals. And that's a requirement, a mandate that comes from California state law, predates my tenure. And what that meant is if we were negotiating a plea, which is how 98, 99% of criminal cases are resolved across the country, and we were aware that the person we were negotiating with was not a citizen, we were required to consider their immigration status and to try to mitigate any collateral consequences that the guilty plea would have. As it happens, that was standard practice in the office before I took over, again, because it's a mandate of state law. You are correct that I was attacked viciously by many people, including uh, Brooke, for simply following state law and staying the course on a policy that had been implemented before my administration. So what do you anticipate she's going to do differently on this? Is she going to not follow state law? Is she going to try to charge people so they are much more likely to get deported? What do you think? Well, it's not going to, there's no way meaningfully to change the charging decisions on the front end, except for what she has already done, which I guess is to charge simple possession. Um, we, under my administration, and frankly, under my predecessor in his final years, were declining to charge virtually all standalone misdemeanor drug possession or paraphernalia charges. The only cases that we filed were felony level possession with intent to sell or actual sales. And there's really not a meaningfully different way to charge those cases, but there is a different, meaningfully different way to negotiate them. And it seems from the tough talk and rhetoric thus far that the new administration is determined to refuse to consider immigration consequences and to seek convictions that will, in most cases, not actually result in deportation directly, but which will make someone deportable and have grave lifelong consequences for immigration status and adjustment of status without any increased benefit to public safety or other meaningful consequences or sanctions that could possibly serve as a deterrent. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, in some ways it's funny, we're talking about such a tragic topic, as you point out, the overdoses every single day are just devastating San Francisco and really communities across the country, but San Francisco has been hit um, uniquely hard. And, and I suppose it's, it's the the real human tragedy that we're experiencing that we see in, in certain neighborhoods in our city, Soma and, and Tenderloin to be sure, that perhaps justifies in some minds 
doubling down on the war on drugs, going back to a policy that I think in our heart of hearts we all know has never worked and will never work. But these conversations and these surges of policing and of arrests and pledges to be more punitive in response to drug dealing and, and the associated crime in the Tenderloin in particular are not new to San Francisco. In fact, if you go back, I'm, I'm looking actually as we speak right now at a page from the San Francisco Examiner back in 1992 in an article about how horrible the Tenderloin is. And it's describing open drug sales and use. It's describing um, people with multiple uh, drug charges back on the streets. It's describing kids witnessing crimes and people saying the Tenderloin has never been worse. It's pushing for a strategy to flood the zone with police. And it's quoting police officers saying in a Another two or three years, I do think we'll see some things turn around here. We're having exactly the same conversations today as though we didn't try this 30, 40 years ago. It's the definition of insanity. And sadly, it's being, um, it's, it's tragedies and it, it's fear that's being exploited for cynical political gain by folks like Brooke Jenkins. Mm -hmm. But so, I mean, let's just open this up bigger, Chesa. When you actually think about what's going on, and there's a number of cities around the U.S., and certainly we saw this in other countries, you know, they really did find a way of significantly diminishing the open-air drug scenes. I mean, New York City, where I live, many other places had, you know, major open-air drug scenes, but those are much less. So San Francisco is a bit distinctive in its being one of a smaller number of cities which still has this open-air drug scene. And obviously it also has a homelessness issue, like Los Angeles and some other places with nice weather and governments, you know, where there's a, you know, a very substantial homeless population. So before we get to the homelessness one, though, the question is what, I mean, if you had more power, if you weren't just the DA, if you were the mayor, right? I mean, Mayor London Breed has been generally antagonistic to you. She's been balancing, you know, sounding like a progressive with being quite tough on crime and all this sort of stuff. And she appointed, you know, a, a kind of tough person to be your successor. But if you had, if you were in the mayor's position, and, you know, you can't change state law, you can't change federal law. But what would you be pushing for to deal with this open air drug dealing thing? What what do you think the answer is? Well, first of all, let's be clear. Talking, quote unquote, tough is not the same thing as having effective policies or even being tough. If, if we want to be tough on open air drug use, if we want to be tough on overdoses, then we need safe consumption sites and we need treatment on demand. I mean, let's be very, very clear. The so-called tough approach is actually criminogenic. It's creating crime. We know that. You don't even need to just look at uh, narcotics. Look at prohibition on alcohol and how that played out in this country. It created mafias. It created Al Capone. It generates a tremendous amount of crime. I was talking to my father about some of the men who were in prison with him and, and some of them who were there for crimes unrelated on the charges themselves to drugs were there because they were doing two or three robberies a week to pay for their drug habit. If you understand that addiction is a public health crisis, that overdoses and open air drug use are public health crises, then you see that district attorneys and police have a very, very limited role to play in responding or solving these problems. Instead, we need to follow the strategies that have been successfully implemented in other parts of the world, places like Portugal, places like uh, Vancouver, where you have 
designated safe consumption sites. And, and let me tell you why that's important. First of all, nobody dies in safe consumption sites. Nobody dies of overdoses in safe consumption sites. You dramatically reduce the human suffering and the loss of life from this addiction epidemic. Second of all, you take some of the urban blight and the real devastating experiences that children and families with school-aged children have stepping over people who are passed out in the streets, human feces, hypodermic needles, and you consolidate the drug use in a safe, clean place where it doesn't need to invade the daily lives of small business owners and immigrant families and so on. And, and third, and this is critical, safe consumption sites are a place where we can connect people who have substance use disorders with harm reduction services so that when they're ready to engage with strategies to reduce dependence, when they're ready to try and re redirect their lives and get housing or employment, they have access to services where they can get that help. In San Francisco, there has never been a political commitment from City Hall, not from this mayor or prior mayors, to make treatment on demand a reality or to make safe consumption sites a reality. And until we have housing and treatment, we are always going to be reading those same stories in the San Francisco Examiner, whether it's 1992 or 2022. Right. But on the safe injection site, so I think many of our listeners will know, because we've talked about this before, there are now dozens of safe injection sites, which are sometimes known as overdose prevention centers in dozens of cities around the world, in Europe, in Canada, in Australia. There's now one operating above ground in New York, and there's even some operating semi below ground in San Francisco and some other cities, right? And the evidence is, as Chase says, right? These are essentially needle exchange programs with a Bat with a back room and a nurse present where people can safely inject the drugs they brought with them. They're not provided with those drugs. And we know they reduce public nuisance, where they reduce overdose fatalities, in fact, eliminate overdose fatalities. They do all these good things. The question is, is what's been the problem in San Francisco? I mean, as we speak, right, there's a bill that went through the state legislature. I think it's sitting on Governor Gavin Newsom's desk. I have no doubt that he knows it's the right thing to do. And I have no doubt that he worries like hell how he's going to explain signing that thing into law if, in fact, he runs for national office. So he's in a quandary he's going to deal with. But the question I don't understand is why didn't London Breed do what de Blasio did? Just say, go for it. I mean, a few years ago, you had to worry about Trump prosecutors, you know, going after you. And they made a big thing of, you know, the Trump Justice Department. We're going to go after anybody who approves these safe injection sites. But now you have a friendly administration, Biden administration, which hasn't said anything on the issue as yet, but they're not going to go after people. You have a friendly guy in the governor's office who's not going to go after people. Why do you think London Breed, and for that matter, some other California mayors just don't proceed now the way that de Blasio did? It's a great question. I wish I had the answer. It's something that I pushed for and called for every single day I was in office. I was urging our city to move in that direction. And I knew what a huge impact it would have had on reducing uh, fatal overdoses, on, on, on cleaning up parts of the city that were very difficult to live in. And there was virtually no action from City Hall. And it's one of the tremendous frustrations that I have and that many San Franciscans have. And, and you know, I think in many ways, it was a, a strategic decision because it seems to have been very effective and useful for the mayor to have an uh, opportunity to blame me for the police department, to blame me and my policies for these age-old problems that yeah. will never be solved until we invest seriously in the kinds of solutions that we know work. 
but Chase, on that one, I mean, she's publicly on record as supporting safe injection sites, right? She has the model of de Blasio. Do you understand, is there a real legal argument or fear? I mean, there already is, what, a longstanding safe injection site in San Francisco, at least one, which is sort of operating with the understanding of the cops. Everybody knows it's there, right? And it's doing good work. It's just a matter of doing what they did in New York and saying, okay, it's going to be legally sanctioned at this point. But any sense about what would be the argument that her legal counsel or anybody else would be telling her why she shouldn't move forward the way de Blasio did? You know, the person who advises the mayor on legal issues, I mean, at least formally, is the city attorney. And the city attorney is normally an elected position who represents all the city agencies, including the mayor. And, and if, for example, we were to open a safe consumption site, and if the feds were to come in and try to shut it down, it would be the job of the city attorney to defend San Francisco against that federal incursion uh, in the courts. Uh, the current city attorney was appointed by the mayor. It was her pick. Mm. If this was a priority for her, if this was something she cared about, certainly it's something that the city attorney would defend her on. It's absolutely puzzling to me why yeah. we have not done more on this as a city. And I wish that you know the district attorney's office had the budget or the mandate to do these things. It, it's it's not really what we do. We need the mayor and the Department of Public Health to step up. And, and mind you, the mayor appoints the head of the Department of Public Health. And they have in mm -hmm. San Francisco a, a budget that's well over $2 billion. There's a massive budget, tremendous resources available, and it simply has not been a priority for people in the mm -hmm. city. And it's to all of our detriment. Well, let's go bigger than this. I mean, when you look at part of what also happened in Europe beginning 30 years ago when they were dealing with open-air drug scenes and overdose, as we were dealing with in the U.S., they didn't pull back all law enforcement. I mean, they still had people getting busted and all this sort of thing, but there was a, a high level of coordination between, they, they called it the Frankfurt system at one point in the early 90s, where the mayor would call a meeting every Monday morning with the head of prosecution, head of police, head of uh, housing services, head of uh, health services, and where if the cops said, well, we have to crack down on such and such a park, we're going to do it Wednesday morning, somebody from housing services will say, well, wait, wait a second, wait, can you wait till Thursday so that we can make sure we're set up to receive the people you're going to be pushing out. But beyond that, they also did things beginning in Switzerland 30 years ago to start setting up heroin maintenance clinics for people for whom methadone or drug-free treatment was not working. They said, let people come into clinics and get pharmaceutical heroin. And they can't take it home, but it'll be like a well-run methadone program, but they can get pharmaceutical heroin. And that thing worked in Switzerland. It spread to other European countries and to Canada, you know, reduce crime, reduce overdose, reduce addiction, help people stabilize their lives. And now you see in British Columbia, especially Vancouver, you know, more and more movement and support by first the provincial government and now the national government for what's called safe supply, which is basically a policy that says, you know, if people are going to be buying drugs, no matter what, from the illicit market, let's allow them to get it instead from a legally regulated source. And either they get it for free or they get it for a few bucks, allowing people to get the drug they want from a legal source. Would you support all that sort of stuff? It seems to have worked really well in, in Europe. And I think you know, there's a lot of evidence behind it. And on the other hand, what we've been doing is far more costly, far less humane, and is not working. So yeah, I would support those approaches. I think we need a radical rethinking of how we respond to addiction in this country. And frankly, I was sorry we didn't have more time to try and push those changes. 
we were continuing to file drug sales cases. In fact, we filed them at a higher rate than my predecessor did when the police brought us felony drug arrests. Not because I thought it was in and of itself going to work, but because I recognized the need not to simply abandon the field, abandon the space. And it was unfortunate that, as we talked about a moment ago, the city was not willing to do the work on the public health front that would have truly been necessary to decrease our reliance on carceral police responses to these issues that are clearly public health issues and that have been dealt with effectively in other jurisdictions. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise.
you look at the issue of all the drug dealers, that's not so much a health issue. That's something else. And the question is, if you were in charge of the police department, if you were talking to the police chief, I don't know what your relationship with him was, was like, but what would be the, your, your answer, um, giving current laws for that matter, about what to do with that? What do you think is actually the optimal answer, giving current laws to dealing you know, with that situation? Not the overdose, not the open drug use, but the drug dealing on the streets. Well, I think in an ideal world, if you have the kinds of policies you just described, you don't have a market for illegal street drugs because people who are seriously dependent on illegal drugs can go and get safe supply somewhere. In an ideal world, the, the role of police is far more limited when it comes to these sorts of public health crises. They're not responding to try to reverse overdoses. Instead, they're simply ensuring that people are consuming in the safe consumption sites and not elsewhere. But even on safe consumption sites, the people who use drugs there have to get them from someplace else, and it's an illicit source. So, you know, in Switzerland, back in the early 90s, before they started the heroin prescription programs, they had a place that became known as Needle Park. It was a the Plotspitz, a park behind the main train station. It was somewhat set off from the rest of the city. And basically, at some point, the, uh, you know, the city government said, you know what, we're going to let all the drug dealers and all the drug users use there in that park, right? And they, if they caught people on the streets, they say, get to that park or we're busting you. And for the first year or so, year and a half, it worked really well. The public health services were there, the drug dealers, everybody could see their, you know, the whole thing was working. And then at some point, it just got totally out of control and they had to shut it down and start doing something else. I mean, some people think the tenderloin's like that, except a zillion people drive through the tenderloin all the time. It's highly visible. You know, it's embarrassing for people who live in San Francisco, not in those neighborhoods. And it's bad for tourism. It's bad for the sense of public order and public safety. I mean, do you think something like that might work in San Francisco? Well, I think they, as you say, I mean, they've essentially done it with the tenderloin for decades. It's been city policy and police policy to push open air drug use into essentially a containment zone. As ironic as it is, it's not surprising to anybody who's paid close attention that when interim appointed district attorney Brooke Jenkins went to do her big uh, press conference on how she was going to take the war on drugs seriously, she did it in the Tenderloin and across the street from her press conference, people were openly using illegal drugs and selling them. Mm -hmm. The police were there. The police walked by drug sales and drug use all day, every day in the Tenderloin. And although they get a lot of overtime and do a few hundred operations a year where they do buy busts, the reality is there's virtually no meaningful enforcement efforts. I think during my administration, police were bringing us on average two felony drug arrests a day in a city where... If you read the national news and if you spend any time in the Tenderloin, there is a very, very real big problem. You'd think it'd be thousands and thousands of arrests, and instead, mm -hmm. it's two a day. And and then the notion that somehow being tougher, quote unquote, on the two people that the police arrest each day is going to meaningfully solve problems that are decades in the making, it's just it's just dishonest. Right. But the police officer association was saying, well, why should we bust them all if you're just giving them all same day release or things like that? In fact, even if they were arresting a thousand, they would just be replaced with another thousand. So it seems like an entirely kind of, you know, chasing one's tail sort of policy where the whole game seems to be about who can be blamed for what's unsightly and not working about all this. 
and you landed up being the guy who got blamed. Well, everybody loves to have a place to point the finger. That's, that's true uh, just about anywhere you go in the world. Yeah. So for our listeners, just so you're aware, what happened in San Francisco was the campaign started going to recall Chase. Uh, it was funded by some wealthy folks in Silicon Valley, some Republican folks as well. You had activists in the Asian American community up at arms. You had wealthier people in San Francisco. Some people live in the community. And everything started to coalesce around Chase Boudin being the person responsible um, for all of San Francisco's problems. In fact, there was, I think, the editorial page editor of the San Francisco Examiner called it the Chase Boudin derangement syndrome, where anything and everything would be blamed on him. Even in Humboldt County, hundreds of miles north of San Francisco, the Board of Supervisors put out a release blaming Chase for the fact that fentanyl was showing up in Humboldt. Now, there was a lot of other stuff going on as well, right? I mean, there was COVID and people going crazy. There was, you know, the stuff around uh, defund the police that got people's backs up in a lot of things. But a lot of the things you had done were not radically different. I mean, you're your predecessors, Ter Terrence Hallinan, Kamala Harris, George Gascon, I've known all of them. They were oftentimes, you know, had, had to deal with the same sorts of assaults and charges uh, that you had to deal with. But somehow the stuff all stuck with you. Why do you think? I, uh, I don't have an answer for you. Um, I mean, we certainly were living through really unprecedented times. The role of social media in, in shaping public consciousness, the resurgence of recalls as a tactic for those who can't win power through normal elections, the Black Lives Matter movement, as you mentioned, you know, a whole series of factors, I think, shaped the the particular um, outcome. And I don't, uh, I don't entirely know. I mean, it's. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there was also kind of recall fever, right? You had those folks on the right. on the school board who got recalled, so there was a whole sense of recall, recall, recall. Something that California has done. I remember when Governor Gray Davis got recalled. Exactly, and that's a key. I mean, for folks who aren't familiar, you know, in many jurisdictions in California, where recalls are notoriously easy to get on the ballot, if a recall does succeed in getting on the ballot, then other candidates throw their name in the ring and get their uh, name listed on the ballot. And voters choose not only whether they want to recall, say, Governor Newsom, but also if the recall succeeds, who do they want to replace him? And looking at um, Larry Elder, for example, as the likely replacement for Gavin Newsom can motivate even people that deeply despise his role as governor, his work as governor, to vote against the recall. Um, the same thing is true in other jurisdictions like Los Angeles, if there's a recall on the ballot. Other candidates for the office, um, get their name listed, and then voters have to choose. In San Francisco, by contrast, where it's very easy to get on the ballot uh, as a recall, there are no other candidates. And so the recall against me was able to spend unlimited political dollars, they spend more than $7 million in the end, simply attacking and amplifying criticisms without ever advancing a single concrete policy proposal or candidate. And in fact, when people pitched reporters on um, criticisms of some of the people like Brooke Jenkins who were in the running uh, to replace me if the recall succeeded, reporters would say, well, they're not running for office. They're not on the ballot. Uh, nobody's interested in this story. It, it's a dynamic which very, very few, if any, elected officials could survive. Uh, imagine if President Biden, for example, had to face an up or down vote, yes or no. He may well be able to win re-election if he's running against Donald Trump or 
Ron DeSantis. But running against yourself is something that virtually no elected official could survive. Yeah. Well, okay. So now there's somebody, the, your predecessor, George Gascon, who's now the district attorney in Los Angeles. One of the things he said, and tell me if you think this is fair or not. He goes, this is a quote, one of the mistakes that Chasen made that I learned from it, and he'll readily recognize, he says, is he was trying to talk to people about data. People don't care about data. This is about emotions. This is about how you perceive and feel. And you cannot use data to deal with feelings. And I think that was a failure. And by the time he kind of woke up to that, it was too late for him. Fair comment by George Gascon or not? 100% agree. Fair comment. Um, I think it's important to have policies that are driven by data, that are informed by data, that are backed up by evidence and, and, and grounded in research. And as an elected official, it's important to meet voters where they're at and to understand that what they're feeling matters, whether or not it's empirically supported. And we spent far too much time and energy showing people statistics about crime rates being down by double digits, about prosecution rates being up, trying to correct mistakes in, in, in mainstream media coverage about the issues and remind them that it's not our decision if somebody's held in custody pre-trial, it's the decision of the judge or all the different things, the nuances. And we spent way too much time and energy trying to correct the record. And people needed to know that they were being heard, that their fears, however connected or disconnected to what you know macro level data showed, their fears were being listened to and taken seriously. And I think that's something that we didn't succeed in doing. Even when we tried our best, it, it was something that obviously uh, we didn't get through to enough people on. I'm curious. I mean, when you think, I mean, I'm imagining if you run for office again for this position, let's say next year or some other time in the future, can you envision yourself getting really outspoken and angry about some vicious killing, about some homicide, about something in a way that taps into the anger and frustration that people who are pissed off that their house or, you know, just got broken into or that their car just got broken or stolen or whatever. I mean, was that something you did? Was it repellent to you to do that? Do you think you would do it in the future? I did do it and I would do it in the future. P people deserve to be safe and deserve to feel safe. And when that feeling of safety is violated, especially with violent crime, it's outrageous. It's offensive. It's harmful. It's destructive. And we need firm and quick response. We need accountability. We need sanctions. I have absolutely no qualms or hesitation about saying that. And I said it loudly and clearly throughout my administration. But I wouldn't do it in ways that undermined the legitimacy of the uh, jury trial process mm -hmm. that prejudged the outcome of the case or the evidence. You know, there is often a, a, a tremendous amount of political and public pressure after a high profile crime occurs to come out and condemn the person that's been arrested and commit to punishing them to the fullest extent of the law or, or what have you. And it's, it's actually unethical to do that. We don't know the full state of the evidence. A jury is mm -hmm. going to decide whether this is the person and whether a crime was actually committed. And so by using the media in a way that tilts the scales of justice, we violate a, a, a core ethical canon. We need to wait and see how the case develops. We don't know what the mitigation will be or what the defenses will be that will be presented. And so I think it's a very uh, delicate balancing act to represent and, and speak the outrage of the community and, and the outrage that I feel personally when looking at some of these heinous crimes.
but not to do it in a way that could lead the defense to get my office kicked off the case for being biased or or a reversal or a, tra- a change of venue uh, because we've tainted the jury pool. Chase, apart from all the concerns around crime in San Francisco, the issue of homelessness has been a huge one. And it's apparent to anybody. I mean, I saw it when I was visiting there. People who live there complain about it. And it seems like when people were throwing everything in the kitchen sink at you, that homelessness was one of the other ones that was, you know, you got a lot of blame for. Yes, I agree. And we did speak out about the need to build housing and to expand shelters. But it's not something within the purview of the district attorney. I have no mandate or budget or staff to address the issues of homelessness. And no law in this state or in this country allows me to jail somebody simply for being poor or unhoused, even if I wanted to do it, even if I thought it was the right thing to do, which I don't. No law, no authority uh, empowers a district attorney to deprive someone of liberty because they're homeless. And so to the extent that people in this city are frustrated with visible homelessness and they're looking to the district attorney to solve that problem, they're going to be sorely disappointed no matter who is named by the mayor or in the future elected by the people to serve as district attorney. So, Chesa, the overdose issue. I mean, San Francisco is almost notorious in this regard. Its overdose fatality rate is one of the highest in the country. It's much higher than the rate of death from COVID over the last few years. Uh, Now, this obviously is not an issue that falls directly in the responsibility of the district attorney, but were you able to do anything about this? Uh, Well, I did. Um, Back in February of 2021, I um, asked the city to implement an emergency supplemental budget to create a fentanyl task force that could both provide some staff to my office, but more importantly, uh, resources to our public health partners, uh, because we saw the ongoing horrific toll of human lives being lost to overdoses. And we saw that the tools we had were totally impotent to address it. And so, yes, we asked the city to uh, introduce a supplemental emergency budget to create a fentanyl task force. And um, we didn't even get a response from City Hall. You know, this makes me think about a coordinated approach that emerged in Europe 30 years ago when you really saw harm reduction advancing at the municipal level, even in cities that were run by conservative politicians. And in Frankfurt was a good model where you had a major problem of drug-related street crime and drug-related HIV AIDS and all the sorts of things, not unlike what you're seeing in San Francisco. And the mayor convened what he or she called the Monday morning meeting, where the, the head of prosecution, the head of the cops, head of housing, head of social welfare, they all were there to kind of deal collectively with how to deal with a you know multidimensional drug problem. And I wonder, was this something that was happening in San Francisco that Mayor Breed was orchestrating? Yeah, I have no, I mean, I have no information suggesting that that kind of a meeting occurred. It may have occurred, but, um, you know, they were very happy to blame me and the district attorney's office for the problems and then exclude us from conversations about solutions if, in fact, there were conversations at all being had. You know, it strikes me that in some of the cities where the progressive prosecutors are taking a lot of flack, a lot of times it's really an issue involving the police more than it is the prosecutors. And I think about what happened, say, in Baltimore after Freddie Gray uh, died, where you had, you know, the police basically saying, fuck it. You know, we're just not going to put ourselves out there anymore. We're not going to come down and respond to crimes the way we did before. And I wondered, I mean, did you have the same sort of phenomena that happened in San Francisco? Absolutely. We heard stories every single day of police officers responding to a, a scene of a crime and talking to a victim and saying to the victim, gosh, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I wish 
uh, we could help, but you know, this DA just won't prosecute. And then doing zero follow-up investigation. And the data is really telling. If you look at, if you just compare, this is using police department data, their own statistics, the rate at which they solved or cleared cases in the first half of 2022, during the final months of the recall, and you compare that with the first half of the year before I was the district attorney, the rate at which they solved every single category of crime they report data on fell by high double digits. In fact, the the category of crime where their police arrest rate fell the least was assaults, and that fell by 19%. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got things like arson, where the rate at which police solved those crimes fell by 55%. And it was frustrating to see that. Um, I, I had a good working relationship with the police chief, but I don't believe that he controls the department. I don't believe that any police chief controls the department in San Francisco. I think the police union controls the department in San Francisco. With the recall, once you lost, the next morning, I remember the New York Times, the national media coverage, it was all about this shows a major transformation in public opinion, you know, public turning against progressive prosecutors. Uh, there was a piece by Alec Karakatsanis. He's the founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. Um, and he critiqued this front page story in the New York Times, basically saying it's bullshit. There is no massive wave against progressive prosecutors. In fact, if you look around the state, if you look at the race that the attorney general was in, Rob Bonta, who's a progressive, if you look at the DA's races in Alameda and Contra Costa counties, um, if you look at other cities, that basically the notion that San Francisco voters were sending a message that was common around the rest of the country was basically bullshit. What do you think? hundred percent. No, I would agree a hundred percent. And, you know, the, the, the irony and the dishonesty in the way that the media coverage, I mean, the pundits were in such a rush to have some sort of national lesson learned from my recall, which was a tremendously unique, in many ways, sui generis uh, kind of a race that's one of a kind. It's not reflective. It wasn't a head to head where, a you know, a, a Republican traditional prosecutor was running against a Democratic reform minded prosecutor. It was, as I said, a race where it was a yes or no vote on me after a two and a half year period in which we'd lived through a global pandemic. We'd uh, seen the police department systematically refuse to investigate cases and in which a Republican a group of largely Republican funders had spent over $7 million in attack ads. That's what it was. It wasn't a head to head. It wasn't a, a, a traditional election. And then a few weeks later, when Steve Mulroy in Shelby County, Memphis, Tennessee wins, a Democrat reformer oust an incumbent traditional right-wing Republican prosecutor who'd been the DA for something like eight years, no mention of it in any of the national media. He won in a landslide against a very traditional police union-backed um, old guard prosecutor. And so you know, there, it, it's clear that there's a desire for whatever reason, maybe it sells papers, I don't know, um, from many in in mainstream media sources to um, to undermine the the criminal justice reform movement in this way and, and to, to, to amplify attacks and criticisms, to blame high-profile crimes on criminal justice reform in ways that they never, ever do in jurisdictions where, you know, we have more traditional punitive and carceral responses to crimes. I think the movement is growing and strengthening, and it's going to keep going for years to come. And it doesn't mean that, it, like any movement, it won't have setbacks. Uh, we will. We'll have some high-profile defeats, and we'll continue to grow despite those defeats and setbacks. 
So thank you ever so much, Chase, uh, for taking the time to be on Psychoactive. I admire your courage in running for office. I admire the work you did accomplish while you were district attorney of San Francisco. And I very much hope that we and the voters of San Francisco will have another opportunity one day to put you back in office to continue the struggle. Thanks so much for your work, Ethan, and a pleasure to be on the show. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Professor Nancy Campbell, one of America's leading drug scholars, who co-authored a book called The Narcotic Farm, about a remarkable institution that simultaneously punished, treated, and researched drug addicts. The narcotic farm was an attempt to separate out people whose sole problem was drug addiction, narcotic addiction. And narcotics was a catch-all term at that time that did refer to both opiates and cocaine, which is a little bit hard for us to understand because they are drugs that do very different things, have very different effects. However, it it was basically um, what became the illicit market. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs) Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We 
doing shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.